Well, Ned, you may or may not remember uh, when we first met. Uh, I definitely remember when we first met. Uh, we volunteer downtown. Uh, Ned is all over downtown Los Angeles volunteering. And um, I found that I was on a uh, panel uh, that was going to interview uh, high-need, high-performing students to give scholarships to. And when I found out I was going to be sitting next to Ned Coletti, I wanted to talk ba Dodger baseball. I was prepared with all my questions. And, and then for the next half hour as we waited for these students and in between, we never talked about the Dodgers. We talked about life. We talked about faith. We talked about these amazing kids who had, had nothing but were doing so much with their life and how we needed to help them. And, and Ned was the one who asked the question, where's the church in all of this? And so that opened a door to a, a conversation, into a friendship. And uh, we, we don't talk much about Dodgers much anyway. We talk about life. That's what we love to talk about. So Ned, we're glad that you're here. Thank you. And we're glad that we can uh, visit with you a bit today. Um, you have a, a book that I think is pretty interesting and I think most of our guests would be interested in. Um, I've read it a couple of times, uh, read it again as we prepared for this conversation. It, it carries with it some of the great hallmarks of every great story. There's a hero's journey story, David and Goliath. Uh, it's a, an Odysseus story. I mean, all the hallmarks of a great story there, the ups and downs, the trials, uh, the bad hops, as you put it. Uh, your life has been an amazing journey and uh, it's not all been easy. Um, if you would, kind of just sort of orient us here around the story of your life. Uh, you said it was a journey that was born among the vines of Wrigley Field, nourished by the Bay of San Francisco, and crowned in the heights near Hollywood at the Dodgers. Tell us where it started with your dad, the snowy day behind the Cubs dugout, and a walk-off Grand Slam. Thank you, Rick. Uh, thank you, everybody, for having me here today, too. It, it is truly an honor to be uh, on campus, uh, to be part of this family, and to, to be here in front of you today. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, my parents uh, got married, and they didn't have a whole lot, so they lived in a remodeled garage that my dad uh, put together. And that's where I came home from the hospital when I was born. I lived in a garage for four or five years, remodeled, but a garage. My parents had lived there for nine years of their marriage. Uh, my father was seven of eight kids. My mom was three of three. Going to high school and finishing high school back then was a big deal. And they both did, and they didn't know really what college was, except that college came after high school, and they kept telling me, you're going to college. We don't necessarily know what that means, but you're going, you know? And um, they saw to it that myself and then my younger brother, that we were the first of our family to actually go attend a university and, and graduate. And um, I learned a lot from my mom and my dad, and they were hardworking, they were blue collar. Um, my mom had, uh, they, people say, what does your mom work? I would say in the home and they would kind of give me a look like, well, that's not really work, but we do know that is work. And you know, my mom was the, um, uh, a great wife, a great mom, uh, the chef, the organizer, and the boss. And my dad was a factory laborer who was paid by the hour. So. Went on to college, started a journalism career, wrote sports, and then uh, had some different trials in 1980-81. Uh, uh, my dad developed lung cancer at 49. Uh, he died at 51. And my mom had never driven a car. We didn't have the money for two cars, and my, my dad wasn't about to, to let anybody use the car because if he didn't get to work, he wasn't going to get paid. And if he didn't get paid, we weren't going to be able to either really live where we lived. And so. 
in this period of time, my dad gets sick, and um, I'm wondering what God's got in store. I'm in Philadelphia, covering the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, wife and I begin our family because my, my dad is sick, and he's not going to live for a very long time. And so in, in, uh, in September of 1981, uh, my wife quits working. I buy a duplex uh, in Philadelphia. The interest rate was a, a paltry 18.5%, you know, and, uh, but I needed to do it because my goals as a, as a young person were if I had children, they, that they would grow up in a, a home and, and not in a garage or an apartment. And so uh, we did that, and uh, my dad got sicker and sicker, and then I lost my job. And so I had no income and um, lived in Philly, 800 miles from my mom and my dad. My dad is dying of cancer. My mom is taking a train and a bus every day to visit the love of her life. And I'm wondering, you know, what's up? You know, and I'm not Job, and I'm not trying to, you know, paint a, a very sorry picture, but it, it, was a, it was a challenging time. You become a parent for the first time, you have a, a big mortgage, you have a uh, no income suddenly to no fault of your own because a newspaper folds. And lo and behold, I got a call from the Chicago Cubs, a team I grew up with, a team that my father and I shared the passion of baseball with, and um, they offered me a job for $13,000. Combined income in Philly was about 30. So I tell my wife, I say, you know, it's a $17,000 cut in pay, and I was making 19, so it's really a $6,000 cut in pay for me. And she was always better at math than me. And she says, you're a fool. Right now, you're making nothing. So that's like a $13,000 raise. <laughs> so that's where my baseball career began. And I spent 13 years with the team I grew up with. Uh, Wrigley Field was uh, the place that uh, I learned the game at, and I had a chance to work there and, and spent 13 years there. Then I went to the Giants up north, which agitates a lot of Dodger fans, but I was looking for work. I couldn't really help where I went, you know. And then I came here, and I've been blessed to be here, and, and the Pepperdine experience has been one of the, probably the greatest professional thing I've ever had the opportunity to partake in. Well, Ned, uh, as we think about your story, um, you, you, you gave me a text the other day about it was uh, the anniversary of the first game you ever saw with your dad yep. at uh, Wrigley Field, a snowy day. Uh, it was April 15th, 1961, and my birthday is the 16th of April. And uh, my dad put together enough, enough spare change or whatever. We went to Wrigley Field, and I can, I can still see it in my mind's eye of, of that day, uh, snowy day. I think the Cubs had opened the day before, you know, probably about 35, 38 degrees in one of those brisk, you know, summer days in Chicago. And uh, went to the game, and a guy named Al Heist, who I got to know years later in my Giants career because he scouted for him, Hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth inning. The Cubs won nine to five, and I was hooked. It took many, many years to get to a World Series, as those baseball fans out there know. It took a bunch of decades after that. But, you know, it's interesting what, what God puts in your mind that you don't ever forget. And, and a lot of trials and a lot of celebrations uh, fill my, my memory. But uh, it was a historic day for me and one that really um, kind of set me on a path and set me on a path to have a career that, I've been so blessed. Uh, there's a lot of people in this room that are blessed, raw blessed. I'll challenge anybody. Nobody's more blessed than I am, you know. It's been one of those walks that uh, I, should, I should not be here. I should not be here for a number of reasons, but I'm here. Well, it's, um, it's funny, and I'll just tell this audience that 
Ned, I have a vague memory of games or even a series here and there and, and a vague memory of some players. Ned could remember every single baseball play he's ever seen. And he can tell you who was at bat. He can tell you what their average was. It's amazing what he can do, and he quotes baseball. Um, Ned, I have a, to let you know, um, as, I, as I read your book, I noticed that, um, you know, it's an up and down story. There's some rough stories in it. In fact, when we brought it to Pepperdine and we shared it with the students, he said, Rick, when I wrote this book, I never thought that I'd be sharing it with Pepperdine students. There's, you know, there's some rough spots in there. What's it, what's it like to be in a rough sport? Like, I mean, how rough is it in Major League Baseball? What's it like to be a Christian in the middle of a, a world like that? What I actually did tell Rick was that there are some bad words in the book, you know, and I said it's probably the only book in the history of Pepperdine would have bad words in it, you know, so I apologize at the outset that I... Well, listen, know, in I, Game I 7 just... last year, we thought some of those words, so... Uh... <laughs> um, it's an interesting walk, and I always had to keep, I always had to keep focused that no matter what happened in a professional world, that uh, God was always with me, and that that's the end game for me is God and, and his, his evaluation of my life and, and how I fit in his plan, not how I fit in anybody else's plan. And you deal with a lot of people. Whenever there's money involved, and there's a lot of money involved, you're going to have all sorts of different challenges. You're going to have a lot of different, um, you know, for lack of a better word, thieves, uh, people who take advantage of situations, people who will bypass the law, bypass the rules, the boundaries, of fair play, it's a relentless, uh, it's a relentless, ruthless business, and it's not alone. There's a lot of businesses in the world like that, but I had to, I had to always kind of monitor by the compass of, of my spiritual walk, and could I had sign players in Latin America and give them cash under the table to make sure I could sign them? I guess I could have, I never did. I guess I could have lied about somebody's injury history before trading them to some other team. I guess I could have. I never did. And so I just, I just did it by the rules. And, you know, I, I pushed it to the rule. I wasn't, you know, so I wasn't, I know the meek will inherit the earth. I wasn't necessarily meek, but I would, I would never pass it, take it past that, that line. And um, it's a lonely job. You know, the book is entitled The Big Chair. And you sit in the big chair, but you many nights when the team, and I'm, I'm sure they're going through it right now with the way the team has played the first 30-some games, it's a lonely place. It's a lonely place to be. You have a lot of uh, responsibility, especially with a team like the Dodgers. You almost have a, a social responsibility to the people who support the franchise. It's a civic, it's a civic duty, too. And um, it was always an honor for me to work for the Dodgers because of their social conscience. The first black player, Jack Roosevelt Robinson. The uh, first prominent Korean player, Chan Ho Park. The first prominent Japanese player, Hideo Nomo. The first academy in the Dominican Republic. So they had, they had a, a social conscience that I haven't really seen in a lot of places. So I also felt that that was a good place for me and a chance for me to, to work under that, that spectrum. Uh, I was, we hired the first female trainer in the history of professional sports in this country as a head trainer and an assistant that also uh, followed her that was female. We, we, we weren't worried about that. We decided to take that type of step. But it, it's a challenging operation. It's, it is every day. I'm embarrassed to tell you I've done deals on Christmas Eve. 
embarrassed to tell you, but that's the kind of job it was. When we were um, visiting with those students and we were thinking about the lives they led, one of the students we were interviewing for the scholarships that we were awarding, um, we were about halfway through the conversation when we realized that this high-performing 4.0 student who was headed to the, uh, um, I, I believe it was the Air Force Academy, uh, we realized halfway through the conversation he's homeless. He doesn't know where he's going to be. He's been couch hopping for, for weeks. And you and I began to talk about, this is one time we did talk about baseball, and just how this society, where it places its values. He said, we've got a kid here who can change the world, but, you know, we're paying, we're paying Clayton $9,500 a pitch, yep. you know. It's a lot of money there, Rick. <laughs> it is. But, but um, you know, I, I would see it every day. I, I do uh, some work in the, in the South Central. Uh, a place called Home is uh, one of my favorite organizations take a lot of inner city kids that are first generation uh, American and, and coming here and learning the language, learning the culture, and going through a tough time of adjustment. And I would spend many afternoons there. And it's 15 minutes from Dodger Stadium. And I would go from kids that were hoping that they didn't get beat up on the way home, hoping that they wouldn't see somebody shot and killed on their doorstep, which some did, uh, to going to a place where, where athletes make 10, 15, 20 million dollars a year. And it's, it's a, a striking difference. And many athletes, and Clayton Kershaw is one, has a tremendous heart for society and a tremendous heart for the Lord. Clayton has, has built orphanages in Africa. I mean, actually gone to do it. One thing to write a check, which not everybody will do. Another one to write a check and then go get dirty doing it and, and immersing yourself in the culture that you're trying to, trying to help and, and trying to mentor and trying to lead. So I, I would see this all, I would see this vast spectrum of life within 15 minutes and, and lived in the one that, you know, there was a lot of wealth and a lot of, um, sometimes a lack of accountability, which uh, was probably the thing that drove me, drove me the, the maddest, I guess. I, um, we all have to be accountable. And I think the more that we are blessed, the more accountability we are owed not just to God, but to, to our, fellow, our fellow people. And I, and I didn't always see it. And I think people say that the, um, when, I, when I left the GM job three years ago, that the stress level was going to be tremendously less. To me, I didn't have a stress level being in that position. To me, a stress level is really when your family, when there's a member that's sick or you're, or you're having a difficult challenge with people you love through illness, through miscommunication, through something like that. That, to me, is stress. Uh, what I did lose when I left the job was aggravation. And for those that didn't, didn't follow through on their half of the promise. You know, I've signed a lot of kids in the Dominican Republic who couldn't write their name. 16 years old, had a talent for the game, had never really played a game because they don't have leagues there. They just have... They just have kids that, that figure out that that's their way off, off the island and out of poverty. And 10 years later, I'm still with them and they're making 30, 40, 50 million in the bank and the hunger goes away. So that's probably where, where, I, where I'm a little bit more relieved than I was in the midst of it. As we uh, conclude our time together, Ned, um, one of the things that was uh, consistent in my life growing up, and again, uh, this is a Dodger baseball fan talking, was 
listening uh, in the front yard of our home in Bakersfield. We'd have that, it was hot out at night and we had the uh, transistor radio on and we were listening to Vin Scully calling games. I know you and Vin are friends. Tell me about, you, you said he represents so much that is true and good. Tell us just as we wrap up here, yeah. something about Vin and maybe even share that story about Vin and your daughter. And uh, I met Ben in 1982 when I first started working for the Cubs, and he was already, he just went into the Baseball Hall of Fame that year. That's, that's a long time ago, but that's how long this man's career was. And through the years, I would see him when I was with the Cubs or with the Giants, and then I had the honor to work with him in L.A. And I don't know how many people I know, a thousand people. It's got to be maybe top three or four in my, in my walk of somebody who is so genuine and has such a beautiful heart. He's a phenomenal baseball announcer, sports announcer. Maybe the best any of us will ever hear. He's just a better soul. He's a better man, um, very spiritual. We would have conversations on flights back and I always knew, even though I've, I probably either dined with him or sat with him probably four or five hundred times, it was always an honor to be in his company because of just the soulfulness of the, of the person and been through a lot of trials in his life. But still, his father died when he was a little boy. His, he lost a son, he lost his first wife. So he's had his, his struggles as well. Um, but just, a, just a, a good, good person. I'll tell you the, the story Rick just alluded to. Um, our daughter came, came out to LA, went to Northridge, and ended up going to, um, interning with the Dodgers for a while. And so she got to know Vin, her and Vin became friends. Uh, she graduated, she went back to Chicago. And I tell Vin, Jenna is gonna get married in, you know, in September. And he goes, really? And he goes, oh boy, I'd love to be able to do something for her and her husband. So he says, you come up with anything, let me know. So God always puts these little crazy thoughts in my brain, you know, that are actually pretty cool. And, and so I go to Vin and I said, would you announce the wedding party? And he announced the wedding party and put it on tape. And you know, we didn't tell anybody really this was going on. But even in Chicago, you know, that voice, everybody knows that voice. So everybody's out in the hall getting ready to walk in. And you know, the MC says, and now you know, we're going to introduce the wedding party. And there's Vin. And a great good evening to everybody, and welcome <laughs> to Jenna and Chad's wedding. You know, our all-stars today are, and he went through the group, wow. and it was just him. You know, and that's, that's just him. And he's, a, he's, he's one of them, he's, if we could all know people like him, our world would be so much cleaner, better, sweeter, and graceful. Thank you, Ned. I'm glad we're friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share a few moments together. There are a few books left up at the bookstore, and Ned has signed them, so there are some autographed copies up there. If you love baseball even a little, you'll love this book a lot. Thank you very much. Most of the speakers I invite are for you. The next speaker I invited for me because no ministers had more influence on the spiritual formation of my life in the last 
many years than Brian Zond. Easy for me to connect to the Missouri connection, similar in age, the love for Led Zeppelin and Bob Dylan and U2 and mountain climbing and so on. Uh, Brian and his wife Perry founded the Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1981. He's remained their lead pastor this whole time. He's the author of Beauty Will Save the World, Centers in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, and other books. He and uh, Perry have three adult sons, uh, six grandchildren, a seventh on the way. And I wanted to mention too, Perry, the two of you hiked the Camino de Santiago and you've written a book, Every Scene by Heart. And after this session, they'll be signing some books and Christine will be signing books as well. So I wanted to mention that. Would you welcome Brian Zahn? Thank you, Mike. How about a bit of Bible to get us started? Is that all right? John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, filled the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone sets forth the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In Cana of Galilee, they ran out of wine at the wedding feast and it would have been a catastrophe but Jesus saved the day when he turned water into wine it was his first miracle but not his last and it wasn't the last time that Jesus turned water into wine either because it's my story too I was midway through life, halfway to 90, and the wine had run out. To use King James' language, my soul was discomfited within me. To use U2 language, I still hadn't found what I was looking for. 
I had encountered Jesus in a most dramatic fashion when I was 15 years old and overnight went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And before I even knew what I was doing, I was leading a ministry, essentially acting as a pastor when I was 17 years old. So I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but that's how it's been for me. By the time I was 30, 31, 32, 33, our church was really growing, and it was booming. By the time, as I, was, as I said, I was halfway to 90, uh, I'd hit the big time. It's a big church, and things are going great, and we have, you know, a big church, a big building, a big staff, big budget, all of that. By the metrics that Americans like to measure success in ministry, I had arrived, and yet the wine had run out. It wasn't that I was having a crisis of faith in the classical sense of the word where I had some sort of doubt about Jesus. It's rather that the Christianity that I was experiencing seemed to be weak, watery, deficient, too compromised. The Jesus that had captured my heart when I was a teenager, seemed to deserve a better Christianity than what I knew. In desperation, I went on a fast. I hope to never do anything like this again. I'm not recommending this. In fact, do not do this. But for 22 days, I didn't do anything but pray Preach at the appointed times, sleep at night. That's all I did. I drove back and forth between my home and our church. Never went anywhere else. I found out I could drive back and forth for 22 days on one tank of gas. I didn't do anything but pray for 22 days. I didn't eat. I was doing this because I was just so desperate. I didn't know what else to do. I thought there has to be something better than this, richer than this, more substantive than this. And so for 22 days, I'm just asking God, isn't there something more? Isn't there something next? Is this it? I got down to 130 pounds. People thought I was dying. I thought I was dying. I was dying. The whole first half of life was dying. Now I thought that, I thought really at the end of this fast, I thought, you know, God would be pretty impressed or something. And I thought, you know, all of heaven would come down. But instead, all hell broke loose. And we entered into difficult times. But I was able to make some breakthroughs, but it changed my, my preaching. I was, I was just done with what I had come to call easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. A Christianity of consumerism, nationalism, Americanism, militarism. And I began to change my preaching. And you would be surprised how popular it wasn't with a lot of my church. Eventually, we lost a thousand people. These are people that I knew that I loved, 
that I'd led to Jesus, that I had baptized, I'd baptized their children, I had done life with them. But when I was going through this spiritual transition, they just, they, they couldn't go with me, it seems. And if you are pastoring a church in a town of 70,000 people and you lose 1,000 members, do you know what that means? It means when you go to the grocery store, you see them. And if you do it just right, if you coordinate it just right, you can see them in aisles 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And every time there's pain. And we went through this transition of moving our church away from a cheap, Americanized consumer Christianity into something that was theologically robust, historically rich. I never for a moment doubted whether it was the right thing to do, but oh, it was so painful. It was so hard. I heard an Italian winemaker one time say, to produce good wine, the grapes must struggle. They must suffer. And I thought, to become good wine, the soul must struggle. It must suffer. You see, the taste of good wine is struggle and suffering aged into beauty. Or as Bob Dylan said it, behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. But I don't regret any of it. I can say that today, it's a good season for us and we're filled with joy and our church is so healthy and vibrant and I t growing. Yeah, I tell people it's, it's half the size and ten times better and growing and doing well. Very, there's a culture of kindness in Word of Life Church and respect for the entire historical length and ecumenical width of the church. I'm very pleased to be pastoring this church now three dozen years in. But it was also during this time that I had to learn how to pray well. I didn't know how to pray well. We're here in this gathering talking about the Spirit-filled people of God. The prophet Joel is the Old Testament poet who spoke of a day when God would pour out His Spirit upon all the people. And Joel said... Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. John Lennon said, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I had some dreams. I really did dream these dreams. I dreamed I was in New York City, and I was looking for the faith of Abraham. I was in Manhattan amidst the canyons of skyscrapers. And I'm there on a quest. I'm looking for the faith of Abraham. So I ask people, people I would meet on the streets, you know, passers-by and street vendors and tourists and policemen. I would say, excuse me, excuse me, sir. Do you know where I can find the faith of Abraham? I was asking all of these people in my dream. Now, in my dream, no one seemed to think this was an odd question. They seemed to understand the nature of the question, and they, but they didn't know, so they would say, ah, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think I can help you there. I'm sorry. And so I began to follow a large crowd. 
You see, there was a large crowd all moving in one direction. And in my dream, I began to follow the large crowd. Eventually, we arrived at a very large auditorium where a very impressive, well-attended Christian event was taking place. It was the kind of event that I was actually quite familiar with. All that would characterize a certain kind of Americanized Christianity and all of its, you know, celebrity culture and its greatness and impressive in every sense. And I was there with the crowd and somehow I knew, without judgment, I knew I wasn't going to find what I was looking for in this place. And so I left. I'm looking for the faith of Abraham, but nobody could help me. And in the big crowd, I couldn't find it. And so I began to wander in quieter streets where I came upon a used bookstore. And I felt drawn to go into the bookstore. I entered the bookstore. as the kind of bookstore that has a little bell at the top that when you open the door, it rings. I walked in the bookstore and it appeared to be empty. It seemed as though there was no one there. So I began to browse in the bookstore until I made my way back to the very back of the bookstore. And at the back of the bookstore, I found Abraham himself seated in something like this, a leather armchair. And in my dream, Abraham had the appearance of Abraham Joshua Heschel, the famous Jewish rabbi and, and scholar and theologian. There's a picture of him. Uh, in my dream, he looked like Abraham Joshua Heschel, but in my dream, he was Abraham the patriarch. And he sat there with his heavy-rimmed glasses and his long beard. And in my dream, Abraham looked at me and he said, Oh, I understand that you're looking for my faith. And he had tears in his eyes. And I said, yes, I am. He said, sit down. And I sat down with Abraham. And Abraham began to talk to me in my dream about the necessity of using prayer books when I pray. Abraham said to me, you know, you can't do all of your praying yourself. You don't know enough. You need the help of ancient wisdom. And around Abraham's chair, there were these old, neglected prayer books. And that's why he had the tear in his eye. And he said to me, you cannot rely on yourself to do all your own praying. You need a wisdom that is greater than yourself. And then Abraham gave me a kiss. And I woke up. A few nights later, I dreamed a second dream. I dreamed I was in Zurich, Switzerland, shopping for shoes with Karl Barth. Karl Barth, the great Protestant theologian. Some say the greatest theologian of the 20th century. This was a very fun dream. Because I realized I was with, you know, the great Karl Barth. And yet I was completely relaxed and comfortable as though we were the best of friends. And I was doing two things simultaneously. I was shopping for shoes 
and also questioning Karl Barth to clarify some of his theology. Because when I went through my spiritual transition, I began to read the very best of the theologians that come from the 2,000-year-long conversation that is how we understand God revealed in Christ. And so I said things like, hey, Carl, now, if I, if I get it right, in your doctrine of election, all the purposes of election are fulfilled in Christ, right? And do you like these shoes? Should I get these or the other ones? What do you think? I'll leave it up to you, Carl. Which ones? And it was, it was a delightful dream. And in my dream, he clarified his aspects of what he meant about election and his theology, and he advised me on a pair of shoes that I purchased. And I woke up. A few nights later, I had a third dream. I dreamed that I was in Calcutta riding in a taxi with Mother Teresa. I really had this dream. I was in Calcutta to pray with the great saint. But we couldn't pray where we were because it was too loud. It was too noisy. It was too distracting. I've been in India 14 times. I've been in all those big cities in India. And it can be just a cacophony of noise. And it was too loud. We couldn't pray there. And so we needed to find a quiet place where we could pray. And that's why we're in the taxi. Now, in the dream, I never spoke with Mother Teresa. In fact, I was very uncomfortable. It was the opposite of the dream with Carl Bart, where I was very relaxed and comfortable. Here I was, I was intimidated by her holiness. And I knew there wouldn't be any light banter. I knew we wouldn't be shopping for shoes together. And I didn't ever speak, but she spoke to me and she said, Brian, in prayer, you must abandon your own agenda. Prayer is not the place for the assertion of self-will. Prayer is the place of abject humility. And she was speaking to me like this about prayer. As we were trying to find a place to pray, but we couldn't pray where we were. And I wondered, well, where are we? And I looked out the window of the taxi and I saw the street sign and it said, Self-Help Avenue. And I woke up. I really did have those three dreams. Let's see if we can interpret them maybe a little bit. All three dreams, by the way, are set in large, modern metropolises. That seems indicative of the age in which we live in. It's fast-paced. It's loud. High pressure. The potential for distraction is everywhere because, indeed, we live in an age where we all carry around in our pockets these weapons of mass distraction. In fact, to understand something of the age in which we live, we might perform a thought experiment. All of my thought experiments seem to involve a time machine, so you're going to need a time machine. Get yourself a time machine. If you're maybe a Doctor Who fan, you have a TARDIS. Uh, maybe, you know, you Bill and Ted fans, you can get a, what is it, a, a uh, DeLorean? Yep, you're going to have to get that baby up to 88 miles an hour. Don't forget that, that's important. Uh, you could go old school with Bill and Ted and just have a phone booth or whatever. But you've got to have some kind of time machine. And you get in your time machine, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're just going to set, we're just going to turn the dial back just a nice round 1,000 years. We're going to go back to the year 1,018. Let's set the destination for just somewhere in the middle of France. So it's medieval France, 1,000 years ago. We zip back in time. We land in some field. And now what we're going to do is something kind of a little bit mean. We're going to kidnap the first peasant we find. 
And so we jump out of our time machine, we come across some peasant, we grab him, we throw him in our time machine, and then we bring him back to 2018. And what we do with our peasant is we make him live our life for one week. He goes where we go, he does what we do, he sees what we see, he lives our modern life for one week. And at the end of a week, we put him back in the time machine, take him back to where we found him, and let him go. Now, the thought experiment begins at this moment. How does our medieval peasant tell his tale? He's been through quite an experience, you know. And so the next time he gets with his friends at the, at the tavern or whatever, they say, oh, Pierre, we haven't seen you for about a week. He said, oh, yeah, let me tell you about it. And what does, he, what does he say? How does he tell a story? I think he would say something like, I was kidnapped by demons, and I was taken to hell, and I was kept a prisoner in hell for one week. And in hell, they never really sleep. They never slow down. It never even gets dark. They just go, 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 go all the time. Do you see there is some truth to that reflection upon the age in which we live? Now, I'm not a Luddite. I'm in, I embrace technology. I really do. And when I need to go to the dentist, I'm really glad that I can go to a 21st century dentist. I don't want to go to a medieval dentist. But the... Advancement in technology has come with a certain price, has it not? And we're not quite sure the effect it's having upon our soul. And so in my dream, my first dream, I'm in New York City, and I'm looking for the faith of Abraham. And people understand. They too are aware that there is something other, but they don't know where it is. They can't find it. They say, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know where you find that ancient faith. Of course, Abraham is depicted in Scripture as the father of faith. But what's interesting is Abraham may, have, may never have used the word faith. Faith wasn't an abstract concept for Abraham. It was just the orientation of his soul towards God. It's how he lived his life in constant communion with the God who is there. So I'm looking for the faith of Abraham. Modern people can't help me find him. So I begin to follow the crowd. Soren Kierkegaard said, the crowd is untruth. My father, a very wise man, he used to say, the majority is almost always wrong. And I followed the crowd to a very large, popular Christian event. I passed no judgment on it. I just knew that I wasn't going to find what I was looking for there. And I went into quieter streets and I found a store that had old books and there in the back of the store I found Abraham himself surrounded by prayer books with a tear in his eye and he told me why I needed to use prayer books now see I'm a well I was born into a southern baptist family but my real spiritual roots are just Jesus movement. I'm a Jesus freak. And uh, we didn't use prayer books. We didn't use liturgy. We weren't into that sort of thing. We were too spiritual for that. And so I meet Abraham. Now today I use prayer books. Today I travel around the world with a prayer book. My three desert island books are a Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Brothers Karamazov. Those are my three desert island books. 
But I like to, when, when I get a little pushback, especially from charismatic people, about the use of prayer books. You use prayer books. I love to tell them, Abraham appeared to me in a vision and told me to use prayer books, so just shut up. <laughs> but that's what happened. Abraham explained to me in the dream that I could not depend on my own self to do all of my own praying because I was not near wise enough. I needed to avail the entire wisdom tradition that is the church. Second dream. Second dream involves meeting Karl Barth, the great theologian in Zurich, Switzerland, shopping for shoes. It was a fun dream. This is the easiest dream of all to interpret. It was very comfortable. It was delightful. And I think it could just be... See, I was beginning to really seriously investigate academic theology. And I was reading Barth. And I'm reading Brueggemann, and I'm reading Hauerwas, and I'm reading Yoder, and I'm reading all of the best theologians. But there's still a part of me that's a little bit, because I was just raised to be suspicious of all of that. You know, that's, that's how we're going to, that's, that's how it's all going to become academic and, and uh, cerebral instead of having genuine passion for Jesus. And yet, I was benefiting so greatly, I needed some sort of permission. And so I think the interpretation of the dream is as simple as this. It was time for me to try on some new theological shoes and find out that I was very comfortable in them. And that was good news because the fundamentalist footwear I had been wearing was beginning to give me blisters. The third dream returns to the subject of prayer. I'm in Calcutta with this cacophony of noise and distraction. I'm there to pray with the great Mother Teresa. But we can't pray because it's too noisy, and so we get in a taxi. I don't speak, but she speaks. She's the one that really does alert me to the truth that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do. Prayer is not the ultimate means to the will to power. It's not a mean of a means of asserting our will. She says, no, prayer is the place where you abandon your own agenda and you embrace abject humility. This is what she said to me in the dream. And I wonder where we are. We can't pray here. Where are we? And I look out the window and the sign says, self, help, Avenue. Prayer is not a means by which we take charge of our life in some sort of self-help program. It's the place in which we encounter God. And become utterly humble before God. And seek simply to be formed by God's own grace. And so these are the three dreams I had. Where I encountered Father Abraham. Brother Bart. Mother Teresa. You say, do I believe these dreams were from God? Well, I don't want to put too fine a point on it. I was wrestling with something very significant in my life. And I think in those dream theaters, I was able to work out some things. But I do see it as a gracious gift. They helped me understand where I was in my journey and how I could continue. And I learned to pray well. That above all things changed my life. I suppose in that long spiritual transition I went through, which I was able to bring my church with me, at least a little more than half of it, I guess, and growing now and healthy. Um, I think that, that whole transition reached a completion 
about a year and a half ago when Para and I walked the Camino de Santiago. A 500-mile pilgrim journey from Santiago de Compostela, Spain, from Saint-Jean-Pierre de Port, France, to Comp Santiago de Compostela, Spain, 500 miles, walking every step of the way, carrying everything we had with us on our back. And it seemed like I was able to finally just walk out of all that pain, all of that old life that I had known, into a new place of peace. And I can stand here today and just with grateful humility say, it is possible for water to become wine. Jesus still does that kind of miracle. I was so scared that I was just going to be left with kind of a watery grape juice, Americanized consumer version of Christianity. But when I was desperate, when I asked, I received. When I sought, I found. When I knocked, the door was open to me. The water did become wine. There was sort of an anticipation of the Camino, the big 500-mile walk, a year or so before when Perry and I walked the Jesus Trail. It's a 42-mile trail from Nazareth, where Jesus had lived his life as the carpenter, to Capernaum, where Jesus begins his ministry as Messiah. The first day is a 10-mile segment from Nazareth to Cana. From Nazareth, where Jesus was the carpenter, to Cana, where Jesus becomes the winemaker, where he begins his ministry, where he works his first miracle. And I describe it in these words. I call it Lachayim, the Jewish toast, Lachayim. Water turned to wine. The miracle is the time that it did not take for common to turn extraordinaire, tap water into carmenere, drawn from pots of ritual purity, taken to the master of the party, hints of plum and kingdom come, salute. In Nazareth, he was called the carpenter. In Cana, he became a master vintner. Samaye said it's a hundred point wine. The miracle did it. The miracle worker did it without a vine. A barrel of vintage from year 30, better than the best from Cape Verde. Also, the feast would not cease. A toast to Mary for her idea. Lachaim. We walked from Nazareth to Cana in the fall of my 54th year, talking Jesus all along the way. Took us the better part of a day. Every other store up and down the line, a Christian selling some kind of wine, call it an entrepreneurial witness to Jesus' first miracle. Cheers. Water turned to wine. The mystery is the time. It takes for my own transformation, a slow and painful fermentation. With a soul like crushed grapes, I'm a dusty bottle in God's cellar. But the winemaker knows his craft. He makes all things beautiful in their time. Hallelujah.